Bible, raise your hands and the teens can be dismissed. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hands. The ushers will come forward and bring you one. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 17, actually starting with verse 7 because we left off at verse 6. But whenever time allows, this isn't a very long study today. So uh, whenever time allows, I try to get us into the proverb of the day, kind of to give us a well-balanced spiritual diet. So if you wouldn't mind, go to kind of the center of your Bible and open it up, and you should see Psalms and the Proverbs. And the Proverbs come after Psalms. So we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 6, starting with verse 16. It says, these six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. Yes, there are some characteristics and behaviors that God hates, It's not that he hates people. It's not that he hates the sinner. He loves the sinner. He sent his son to die for the sinner. The Bible says that when we were ungodly, Jesus came. Jesus didn't come because we cleaned up our act and we were behaving. He came probably at the worst time in human history. So God loves the sinner, but he hates certain characteristics and certain behaviors, especially if those things are perpetrated by God's people. But number one, pride or haughtiness. This is the sin that brought Lucifer down and a third of the angels in heaven, and ultimately man. This pride is a foundation, I believe, for all other sins. Because if you think about it, pride is where you think more highly of yourself than you should. So you feel that you're owed something. You feel that you're entitled, okay? And unfortunately, our society is rife with that entitlement mentality. Pride is that foundation for many other sins. Two, lying. Satan is the father of lies. And from him, all other lies emanate. And it's hateful to God because God, one of his characteristics is he is the truth. So anything that's a lie is opposed to God's character. Three, the murder of the innocent. Hands that shed innocent blood. Starting with Cain, who killed his brother Abel. And Cain killed his brother Abel because of jealousy, because of pride. Because God found favor with Abel's sacrifice. Abel was doing the right thing and, and Cain wasn't. Instead of repenting, he killed his brother. How many murders do you think were perpetrated since Genesis? There's got to be in the billions or more. How many people have lived and died uh, since the beginning of mankind? Jesus even said, if you think evil in your heart, you're murdering somebody. To plot evil. Now, to plot evil. I like to meditate on the scripture because there's something there. It's a plan. <laughs> you're, you're coming up with this plan. You're devising it. You're getting the schematics ready. You know, how are you going to do it? One, one through ten. Even in New Jersey penal code, California penal code, any of the penal codes of any of the states, the penal code says that conspiracy or premeditation carries a greater punishment than a spontaneous crime, a crime of passion, so to speak. Why? Because it's a, it's a mental, it's a knowingly and purposely, all legalese, to commit this crime, a plotting of evil. Meditate on that. Pretty, pretty harsh. Feet that are swift to do evil. There's some that just can't wait to be part of the, of the problem. You hear the word drama thrown around a lot. They love to be in the middle of the drama, right? And a false witness, number six, that speaks lies. 
very destructive because when you lie about someone and you spread a lie, it's almost as if you're, you're, you're spreading all these little fires. And some person, maybe the person's righteous and they really do have a good reputation, but they can't put out all those fires. Okay? And some may believe these things as fact. So it's very easy to go on the offense and assassinate somebody's character and spread lies about them. And, you know, you're going to get a good, good percentage that even if the truth comes out, they're still going to believe those lies. And seven, one who sows discord. Almost the philosophy of the best defense is a good offense. I'm going to, I'm going to get what I need by going on the offensive, right? And you see how people argue back and forth. The offensiveness, a lot of times it's very effective. Action is faster than reaction. They go on the offensive to divide. Now, God hates this discord because he is the God of order. Remember, the Bible says that God is the God of order. And Satan is the God, or little g, God, the false God, of disorder and anarchy. Satan loves to sow anarchy. As a matter of fact, in Romans 13, the first uh, few verses, it speaks about government. It speaks about how God ordained government. And we would say, gee, I don't understand that. A lot of governments are corrupt. Because God set up order for society. And what does Satan do? Satan introduced dictatorships, you know, um, Hitler, Stalin, all these types of guys, uh, corrupt governments. Again, it's a cheap image. See, God sets up things that are perfect, and Satan always tries to ruin what God set up and set up a counterfeit, something that's a false second, so to speak. And we're going to see, we have seen in the book of Revelation, as I'm talking, you can fast forward to the last book in the Bible, all the way to the right, the book of Revelation, we see a society that really embodies a lot of these qualities. And I love when I can, on Sunday, bring Proverbs and really tie it into what we're covering in the New Testament. But we see a society that embodies these seven awful uh, characteristics, starting with pride. Okay, um, just a, a brief background. The last time we covered the whore who rides the beast, if you weren't here last Sunday, uh, she was emblematic of many things, and that's key. If you try to say, okay, the whore that rides the beast is this, you're going to get confused because there's this, the spirit of Babylon. There's a lot of things that are embodied in that vision and what she represents. And whenever you see a vision in the Bible, there's a representation there. Okay? And John's getting this vision. This is a system, the spirit of Babylon, that's designed to pull man from God. And number two, she also can represent man-centered religion counter to God's design. And we saw that. I gave you that foundation in Genesis 10 and Genesis 11 with um, Nimrod and Babel, right? And the third thing that she embodies is a, really a future fulfillment. We talked about how the Hebrew mind works, the, the Western mind works, that there's a prophecy that's spoken of and it's fulfilled. Okay, we, we got that. The Hebrew mind understood a pattern of prophecy. Uh, Daniel chapter 9, that prophecy was fulfilled many times. Uh, John tells us that there were many antichrists, many men who came, wicked leaders that embodied the spirit of antichrist, but we know in the last days, the final antichrist will be really the icing on the cake, the big kahuna of antichrist, so to speak. So the future fulfillment of this whore who rides the beast is the false ecumenical movement of Christians after Christ's true believers have been raptured from the earth. Now let me explain that to you, and I talked about this last Sunday. If you have a pool, and you say, get everybody into the pool, who calls themselves a Christian. Well, it's going to be a very big pool. You're going to have millions, if not hundreds of millions of folks that are in this pool. And then when Christ comes to take his church home, he raptures his church, the great Harpazo in the Greek. Okay, he pulls his true church out. There's going to be a lot of people left in that pool. How do I know that? Because we covered it scripturally. 
There's still got to be a false church, so there's still got to be folks who call themselves followers of God, but they're really not. Okay? So that's important to understand. The apostate church of the last days left Christ. She prostituted herself with the world system and the Antichrist-dominated world government, and now she's enticing others into her uh, degradating folly. Today we're going to cover the rest of chapter 17 and eventually see this lysis or this separating of the unholy alliance between the woman and the beast, the false church and the government at the time. Now, again, just to say this real quick before we jump in, last Sunday gave you a good foundation to understand what I'm going to say today, to understand Revelation 18, this whole Babylon concept. Go to the website, get yourself a free download, and just listen to the foundation that was laid Uh, last Sunday, where it started all in Genesis. Okay, verse 7. But the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was, and is not, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. A little confusing. Give you a little background. The angel is speaking to the apostle John and he's basically saying to John, I'm going to decipher the vision that you're seeing with this whore riding the beast. Now, and I'll just do a quick recap. So you got this woman, she's riding this red colored beast with seven heads and ten horns and it's almost, I get the impression, she's riding him like he's a horse, right? And there's a picture of this woman. She's, uh, she's wearing purple and scarlet. She's got gold and diamonds and precious stones. She's got the cup full of abominations. And she's got these blasphemous names written on her forehead. One of them, she's the mother of all harlots. And it says, uh, Mystery Babylon. So he went into the Babylonian system. She is drunk with the blood of the saints. And my picture is almost like a vampirist type of character where, you know, she's just, she's drunk, drank so much of the blood of the martyred saints over the years, and the Bible speaks about that, that she just got this blood of others just dripping down her face. So it's a picture of, she's a prostitute, so it's somewhat enticing, because she's enticing the world, pulling people away from God, but also a horrific vision at the same time. And if you're the Apostle John, if it was me, I'd be marveling too. I'd be trying to wrap my mind about this vision of this woman. So that's what you have in the first six verses. Now, the angel switches gears a little bit. He explains the woman. Now he's going to the beast that she's riding. Revelation 13, we covered a little bit about the beast, the Antichrist. And as we go forward, I try to put more puzzle pieces together. So here's how it's explained. The beast that was, past tense, is not, not presently, present tense, will ascend out of the bottomless pit, future, and go to perdition, future, future, the lake of fire. And you've got to follow the verb tenses. So who is he talking about? If you're a preterist, some of the reformers kind of follow this preterist view too because they didn't have the benefit of seeing our society and, and the advances and the fulfilled prophecies that the Bible speaks about in our very society. So the preterist view would say, okay, that has to be the Roman Empire and it has to be a Roman emperor, Nero. Nero was the answer to everything. He was 666. He was the beast. He was everything according to the preterist. I think it's a little bit myopic. Um, it's short-sighted in light of a big picture of what this vision represents. He was. This demonic spirit who embodies the beast, probably some type of archdemon, he's at work 
prior to the time of John's revelation, because John is now speaking in the past, possibly that this, be, this uh, demonic being infused Nero, I'll give them that, and other emperors in the past. So he was at work in, in these, these types of men. He said, is not, is not, not active at the time of John's writing, probably or apparently incarcerated in the bottomless pit. The bottomless pit, we saw that in Revelation 9 in the fifth trumpet. And the bottomless pit was opened up and all these demon-type beings came up out of the bottomless pit. Pretty horrific time uh, on the planet Earth. So he's incarcerated at the time John is speaking in the bottomless pit. And he says, we'll ascend out of the bottomless pit. So he will be released in John's future and certainly our future uh, to innervate or energize the Antichrist, as he may have done with prior emperors. Remember, these demons, you know, they're eternal in a sense. They are. So certainly they could be at work in an emperor and when he dies they could look for something to do go somewhere else get involved with somebody else who wants power and glory for himself and these demons they do that you know when jesus was on the earth he cast out many demons and if you remember when he cast out the the legion out of the one man they said permit us to go into the pigs please don't send us into the abyss it's so cool you really get an insight now our world opens up and we can see a spiritual realm so I love that in the Bible where you can see, you know, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. You take away our, our tangible universe, open it up, and we get to see the spiritual realm. So it's kind of neat, little peekaboo action going there. Um, and we'll go to perdition. Eventually, the damned, they will be damned with the rest of the dem- demonic entities. When we talk about perdition, we talk about the final state, we talk about the lake of fire. You've heard people say, hell, you're going to go to hell, you're going to go to hell. In the end which we're going to get to in Revelation, the lake of fire is the final judgment. It's this big, awful lake of fire. And the Bible even says that Hades and death are thrown into the lake along with the demonic beings, along with the rebellious uh, who reject God's only way of salvation. So everything's going to burn for eternity in this lake of fire. Now, another view. Now, this is the part of the, the Bible, let's see, 17, 18, a little bit of 19, that I think that, you know, I've been praying about it, studying, and I use a lot of foundation from the Old Testament, New Testament. I try to put all that stuff in there. I believe I got a good handle on the book, but I'm only a man. Um, there are some other views out there that are worth exploring, so I'm going to explore them. Um, I don't want to split hairs on exactly what we're seeing unless the Bible is very clear definitively on what we're seeing. But again, pattern of prophecy, it could mean one of several things. Another view is that the whole term was, is not, will be, is that whole picture of the beast in Revelation 13, the Antichrist, who takes an assassination, a head wound, right? He loses ambulation in his right eye and his right arm. He comes back, and it's a picture of a, a false resurrection. We talked about in Revelation 13. So this Antichrist will, uh, somebody tries to assassinate him, and, and it appears that he's dead, but he comes back to life. How exactly that's going to happen? That's up to the Lord. I'm not really sure. But it's a counterfeit resurrection. What does Satan always try to do? This is a book of hope, apocalypsis, the unveiling, but it's also a book of counterfeits. So Satan is really ramping up the counterfeit machine. He's pumping out a lot of counterfeits. So here's a counterfeit resurrection of Christ because he was the one, he was the, the first fruits of the resurrection. So here this Antichrist is going to have a sort of resurrection, a counterfeit. The other thing is, was, is, and is to come. Who does that sound like? You guys drink enough coffee? (laughs) 
the eternal nature of God, right? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. God always was. I don't know. How, I can't fathom that. Who made God? Nobody. He always was. Okay. I'll leave it at that because my mind is finite. He is, and he is to come. He will always be. So again, this is another counterfeit of God. And that's how you read Satan. His patterns, his MO, if he was a criminal, are the same. The, the challenge here lies in, and you know, I'm going to try to do the best I can to, to make this understandable. The challenge lies in, um, you know, John is speaking. Okay, 2,000 years ago, he gets the vision. He's, he's taken into a vision, and he's getting a picture of the future. And his future is actually our future. So I'm going to do the best I can to explain it, but we're going to be in the past, we may be in the present, and we may be in the future. Not confusing the God, because he sees it all in one shot. To us, we live in the present. So it's a little hard to grasp, but I'll do the best I can here. Those that marveled, whose names were not written in the book of life. So you see this woman on the beast, you see this beast, and those on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was, and is not, and yet is. John marveled at some of these visions, but let's, let's understand the difference. The disciple John gets a vision. He sees the dragon. He sees the woman. He, sees, he probably slept really good for days after all that. His mind was probably on sensory overload. Uh, but I could appreciate that. But he sees these visions and, and he marvels. He's like, wow, this is like something I've never seen before. And then the angel explains it to him. Okay, now I get it. And he, he writes it down. But when the world sees the beast... When the world sees the harlot, they love them. It's a different type of marveling. This is great. The economy's bad. Iran and North Korea are acting up. Pakistan went pro-Taliban. Um, you know, we're, we're having all kinds of trouble. We're in debt. You know, all these things are happening. Cataclysmic events. And the world is just going to be so happy to see the beast because he's going to say, I'm going to solve all your problems. And the woman who rides the beast, she's going to say, I'm going to get all the churches together Let's, you know, that doctrine stuff is so archaic. All it does is divide God's people. Let's all get together with a group hug, love each other, because we all worship the same God. So the people who are not saved are going to see these two and go, this is the best thing that's ever happened to planet Earth. They're going to marvel in a different way. And the attitude really is, you know, you're in two, one of two camps. You're either, you're either a humanist, you're man-centered, you think man will solve his own problems, and you eventually, if you don't get raptured, will be taken by the beast and the woman. And you'll be brought right into that system. Or you trust God. I have a question to everyone here. Raise your hand if you know, if you've been promised everlasting life, and if you know your names are written in the book of life. Raise your hand. Oh, good. Everybody's saved here. <laughs> that was pretty sneaky, wasn't it? No. <laughs> I'll remember that during altar calls. Um, but it's true. Now, is that an arrogance? No. 1 John 5 tells us that we can know that we have eternal life. Right? Some faiths say, well, that's presumptuous. You can't know. The church hasn't told you if you're saved. You can't know until the end. You may not be part of the elect. Right? It's a presumptuousness on your part. But the Bible says you can know that you have eternal life. Man, that's the comfort right there. My name is written there. Okay, verse 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, 
he must continue a short time. And the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. Be a little confusing there. There's a twofold understanding of this seven heads because he says it. It's this and it's also this. Okay. The seven heads of the beast. Number one, there's seven hills or seven mountains. If you take your search engine and look for the city on seven hills, you find that that's Rome. The city of Rome, even today, is built, it has been built on seven hills. As a matter of fact, in Latin, each one of those hills are named. They have a name for the seven hills that the city of Rome was built on. Rome will play a big part. It played a big part in John's time, and it will play a big part in end times prophecy. And I'm going to get to a little bit more on that. Uh, the seven hills, also mountains represent kingdoms. The twofold significance is there are also seven kings. Now, some believe, again, Roman emperors. Oh, I can count um, Augustus, Tiberius, boom, 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 all the way up to Nero. Again, I think that's a little short-sighted. But the seven kingdoms, the seven kings of the seven kingdoms that are very similar throughout uh, human history are the leaders of the following kingdoms and empires. Egypt was a world dynasty. Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece, five, have fallen. They no longer exist. They don't exist in our time, and they didn't exist in John's time. One is. Which one was at the time of John in AD 90, roughly? Rome. Rome is at his, his point in time. Uh, and one is not yet to come. Now, you could say, well, it was Hitler's Germany. It was Stalin's Russia. You can't. It was the United States. This, these kingdoms that I mentioned had domination pretty much over the world. Any kingdom after Rome, you really can't say that they've had that type of domination. Um, so one is not yet, which will be the Antichrist-dominated, revived Roman Empire. And he speaks about uh, they'll continue for a short time. Compared to the last six empires, from Egypt to Greece and Rome, the Antichrist-dominated uh, reign is only a few years. However, it's a short reign, but there's a lot of destruction in that time. So he's going to try to, once he gets into power, he's going to try to just steamroll over everybody, take control, wars, attack Israel, the whole thing with the temple, and we've, we've gone over through this in the whole uh, book of Revelation. And in verse 11, it says, he is the eighth, but he's of the seventh. He's both distinct and familiar at the same time. Number one, he's of the seventh. He's similar. Pers he persecuted Israel and the saints and is opposed to God. You look at all those kingdoms, what do they have in common? They persecuted Israel. And they opposed God. They took the place of God. So he is of the seventh. But he is the eighth. There's also a distinction there. Because this leader, I believe, this Antichrist, is going to be, again, the final Antichrist, the embodiment of evil. This counterfeit resurrection may open the door to direct satanic rule directly instead of indirectly. Again, that's my theory. I believe that, you know, would God allow Satan to resurrect this guy? I don't know. I think it's kind of, I don't know. I just don't know the answer. But if he really does die, and then he kind of comes back to life, it could be Satan directly now, just taking a hold of his body and ruling the world. So before Hitler, you know, Hitler, if you really, if you follow history, Hitler could have conquered pretty much most of the world, but he was a lunatic. So Satan probably was trying to push the buttons and, you know, he wasn't responding properly. Uh, or God just said, you know what, that's enough. That's, I'm just going to cut it off here. 
Satan, I believe, in this last hurrah with the Antichrist will have more of a direct role. He's not going to make any mistakes. Satan's been around for thousands of years. He's a great general. He's a great psychologist. He knows what pa- what, how people tick. So if, if you're Satan, thousands of years of experience, he knows humans are stupid. He knows how they work. They forget history. So he's going to really do some damage in this time period. So he's distinct as of the eighth. Verse 12. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as of yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are called chosen, are called chosen and faithful. Ten kings with no kingdoms, why? Because the ten nation european federation will abdicate their sovereignty let's just say england france germany are part of it they're going to abdicate their sovereignty and put their weight behind the antichrist and say we will give you germany we will give you france we will give you england because we know that you're going to do a great job in leading the world so they're abdicating their sovereignty so they're ten kings without a kingdom makes sense doesn't it and if you look at Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8, just a cursory looking through the, the book of Daniel will show you so many pictures and so many um, patterns of prophecy that are coming true in the book of Revelation. So Daniel's a great book just to read. It'll give you a background and a foundation. The more you know the Old Testament, the more it will help you understand what we're covering now. They will receive authority for one hour. It's that concept again. It's a terrifying reign. But it's a short time span compared to the previous kingdom's durations. And verse 14. Man will never learn. They will make war with the lamb. Okay, so we have more people, more horses, more tanks, more F-22s, more ICBMs, more carriers. Now we're going to make war with God and win. What are people thinking? So they're going to make war with the lamb. All the kingdoms are going to get together and they're going to be like, you know, let's, let's do it here. Let's give it a shot. It's the embodiment of Psalm 2, which we've covered many times here from the pulpit. Um, From Babylon to Babylon, once more, man fights with God for autonomy and for supremacy, no different than in Genesis 10 and 11 with the Tower of Babel, embodying the Babylonian system. Called, chosen, and faithful. Um, All believers, and especially those that are clung to faith in the midst of the tribulation. You see, it's worth, how do I say this? We as Americans can come up, receive the Lord, and, you know, I'm in that category. And did it cost me a lot? Maybe some of my friends in the beginning said, oh, are you too good for us now? You don't go to whatever places with us. Uh, Maybe I lost. Some family members thought I was cuckoo, you know? Big deal. Maybe some people, whatever, that I know or talk to on the streets say, you're crazy, you're archaic. That's the, the, the bulk of my persecution. However, if I was in Malaysia or Indonesia or Iran or Syria or North Korea and I said, Look, praise the Lord, let me go preach a Bible study, my fate may be a lot different. It might actually be hazardous to my health and give me a shorter lifespan. So these folks, especially in the tribulation, this was worth something to them. They didn't take their faith lightly. And my question is, as Americans, it doesn't cost us much. Do we appreciate what we've been given? Do we appreciate the gift of life? It's a good question for Americans to ask. You know, I I hear of some really bizarre supernatural events, good and bad, in some of these mission fields. 
uh, apparitions of demonic entities and you know people doing like like the guy in um that, that jesus went to see uh, was at the gatherings he had chains and he broke the chains he had superhuman strength because he had satanic uh, embodiment he was possessed i hear about the same stuff on the missions field but just as amazing as that is the, the miracles that god does to counter those things the healings and stuff and as americans satan knows how to get to us because he is a great psychologist we're smart we're all educated, right? We all know better. We're Americans. We're going to show those Mexicans down there when we go on our missions trip how to take care of them because we're Americans. We do have an arrogance. I love my country, but it has become very arrogant, me-centered. So Satan doesn't scare us with apparitions and stuff like that. What he does is he uses it, like Proverbs said, he uses our pride against us. He actually, as Christians, he uses the complacency and the apathy to take place you're saved you're going to heaven but you're going to be useless for anyone else because you know what you got your Wii to play and your xbox and your sports events and your your more education so you have 50 letters after your name instead of just three you know i'm not trying to be rude but it's just the way we are as americans so that's how satan gets to us i'm going back to the original point those who came out of the tribulation you know their faith cost them something and I think sometimes we take our faith too lightly as Americans. I just, my prayer is that we would be more useful to God, and including myself. Verse 15. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits, now we're going back from the beast to the harlot. Where she sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And this was spoken about in verse 1. It's just an explanation of verse 1. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Verse 16. This false religious system, this harlot on the beast that was used to bring in the masses using religion, when this is accomplished, the Antichrist-dominated system no longer needs her and will destroy her. A few images here. They said she'll be, they'll make her desolate and naked. Naked in a sense of stripped of her power. Remember the golden cup and the precious stones and the purple and scarlet and all those great things that this woman had? She says, I am no widow. We see that later on. I'm a queen. She's going to be stripped of all that power. So that's the first step. Two, they'll eat her flesh. Cannibalism? I don't get it. Vision, cannibalism, what's going on here? Well, you even see that in the animal kingdom. And that poor woman I prayed about, they say that you get these exotic pets and they live with you and they sleep in your bed and all this kind of stuff. But eventually, some point in time, the animals resent being dominated by humans again it's the arrogance of humans so you see the thing with the tiger attacking its trainer and killing him remember that one the thing with the chimp eating the woman's face and fingers and these experts animal experts say that uh the animal gets tired of being dominated so the animal turns on the person who you know they do actually bite the hand that feeds them and they try to kill the one who's been dominating them because they don't want to be dominated anymore simple uh, illustrations from the animal kingdom but this beast will turn on the woman and strip her naked and eat her flesh it's a complete betrayal of the religious system that got and helped who rode the beast to get it where it needed to get. Now the beast is turning on the woman. The third image is she'll be burned with fire, total destruction. 
And again, we can speculate. Um, how does this happen? You know, it's such a wonderful bedfellows. They love each other. You know, why would the woman and the beast, why would there be this dissension? Well, think about it. Imagine a country that had two presidents. I'm, I'm, talking, I'm not talking about a president and a vice president. Two presidents of equal power. Eventually, there's going to be some frictions. And especially in evil, what have we learned from the Bible? That evil eventually turns on itself. You know, sin is fun for a while. If I stood up here and said to you, sin is no fun, don't anybody fall into sin, and then you did it, you'd be like, yeah, he's lied to me. I'm not going to lie to you. Sin is fun. It feeds the flesh. It's great for a while, for a season, especially when you're with other sinners. You get other, other sinners to get along with you and, and be in your sin with you. Hey, we're having a party. We call that a party, right? Two or more sinners is a party. <laughs> but understand the very nature of sin is three things. It's disloyal, right? It's unmerciful, and it's unloving. See, when the cops catch a burglar, and there's a bunch of burglars, and the burglar says, well, I don't want to go down by myself, so he rats on his other friends so that he could get a deal and be state's witness. That's what evil does. Sin is great when you're in the party, when you're in the mix. Yeah, isn't this awesome? But once, eventually, sin turns on itself. Sin is unstable. The double-minded are unstable. Okay, then this is what happens. It's just the way it goes. Verse 18. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now, there's a lot of different speculation on this. Some would say it's Rome. Some would say it's the Vatican. Because it still retains a lot of its power. It has its own security force. It has its own ambassadors. It's really a city within a city. There's a lot of power. The church of God, the the universal church of God gained a lot of power over those uh, few hundred thousand, uh, thousands of years. And it will be a leader in the ecumenical movement. But understand this, no matter what city it is, I can't tell you definitively what the city is, but I can say that it retains the spirit of Babylon. Okay? Babylon to Rome to the Vatican in the Middle Ages, and probably Rome will be a big player in end times prophecy. Let me just throw this, because I like to throw facts out, because I don't want to just say something from emotionalism or platitudes. I don't do that up here. In 1986 and in 2002, and in 1993 and some other dates, the Vatican had a World Day of Prayer in Assisi, Italy. They invited, and I saw the videos, they invited shamans, spiritists, animists, polytheists, right, to all pray to the same God. We don't worship the same God. I wouldn't worship up here. I wouldn't have a shaman come up with me and him tell me about some animal God that we should worship and me and him are going to do the sermon together. That's called unequally yoked. So in Assisi, Italy, Pope, Protestant leaders, um, these, these pagans all got together and they all chanted and did this and prayed to the one universal God. I tell you, if you saw it, it was kind of freaky looking. The ecumenical movement, this is something to use your search engine, engine for. Put in 1986, 2002, Assisi, Italy, and you find out what you get. It is true. There will be a world movement to unify all the world religions. We spoke about that. And that has to happen because it has to be in conjunction with the spirit of, of, of Babylon. It has to happen. The Bible says it will happen. And there are some who will be judged who are leading this charge. Again, look it up. Now, especially in chapters 17 and 18, probably the most in my three-and-a-half-year tenure, <laughs> my long and lofty career, um, it probably has been the most challenging for me. Spirit of Babylon, man, what is this? I've got to go back to Genesis. Oh, I'm <laughs> pulling my hair out. How much do I put this stuff in here? But I tell you what, it's been a pleasure to, to study it. It's been a pleasure to teach it, and it was certainly worth the, the effort. 
But we can have some debates. You, one of you may come up to me after service and say, well, I think that, okay, you're entitled to your opinion. I'm not going to kick you out because you disagree with me. Because there's some of the minutiae in here that are a little, little challenging, but we can all come to the same conclusion. Number one, we have man's achievements over here. Egypt, the pyramids, one of the wonders of the world. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. Until you find out they use slave labor, that's kind of cheating. Um, you can look at the Babylonian Empire and the Hanging Gardens were one of the seven wonders of the world. We can look at the Greeks, Alexander the Great. I believe he conquered the known world in 10 years at the age of, he was in his early 30s. Yeah, very impressive stuff. Man's achievements, man's Tower of Babel. Denominationalism, which becomes such an entrenched, and I'm not saying anything against it, believe it or not, but we're such and such, we're a Calvary. I've seen arrogance in the Calvary system. We're not the end-all, be-all. There's some lot of good Bible teachers out there that aren't Calvaries. Um, working my way to salvation, man's greatness, it's in this corner. I was in um, court last week testifying, and I was with a, a friend, and he's from one of the major denominations, and we had this interesting discussion. And he asked me, do you guys do the 40 days of Lent? I said, no, it's not in the Bible, so we don't really follow it. And uh, he goes, well, I like the special devotional days and the weeks because, you know, you can give that devotion. And I'm like, yeah, but what about normally? Wouldn't you want to do that normally? He goes, nah, it's a, it's a lot to maintain normally, but it's to, to do it every once in a while is really good. And then I said, dude, that's what relationship is all about. You know, you, you, you gain a relationship with your God, the one who created you, your father, the one who loves you. And every day, you and him put a little bit into that relationship. And after 10, 20 years, you've got a solid relationship with your Father in heaven. So when you step into eternity and you go to greet him, he's not a stranger because you have a relationship. So you have that on one end. And over, on the other hand, you have what God wants, God's grace. I love you. Christ died for the ungodly. You didn't have to clean up your act. It's all for you. I sent my son to die a horrible death to die on the cross and shed his blood for the remission of your sins. God's forgiveness, God's son, relationship, a simple way to salvation. Everybody can do it, right? So the elderly person who maybe their friends died off and, and they're alone and they're disabled and they're poor. Well, they can't do a lot of good works, can they? They can't move around, they can't spend money. If it's based on good works, what happens to that poor elderly person? They don't have a chance. But if the playing field is leveled, that person has the same chance that Donald Trump has with all his millions and billions. See, Jesus levels the playing field. So you have this or you have this. And that's really what these two chapters are about. I want to read one quote from F.B. Meyer. F.B. Meyer says, Man does not like the religion of the cross, of faith, of self-denial. And each age has witnessed some false system from which all these objectionable elements are eliminated. Surely a false system has revealed itself or revelated itself successfully in Babylon, Jerusalem, Rome, London, New York, and other great centers. Fashion smiles on it. Wealth adorns it. Human power unites with it. And in every age it has been intoxicated with the blood of the martyrs. F.B. Meyer. Eventually God will overturn this false way to salvation, this false way to man's achievements and its worldliness. And if that's what we've built our house on, we'll have nothing left in the judgment. The Lord is coming soon, I believe, and my prayer is that our spiritual house be built on only quality materials. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that, well, it's a double-edged sword. We see that people have tried this before. They've tried to work their